In local news, a Titan Arum bloomed in NC State's Marianne Fox greenhouse last week. You may know the Titan Arum, the giant smelly corpse flower. The rare flower hails from Indonesia and uses its stench to attract insects and spread its pollen. Once the flower is ready to bloom, it will smell for around two days and then fall after about a week. The plant has been growing for 10 years now and has been tended by NC State graduate student Brandon Huber. Dobson, North Carolina. The continued health of streams in North Carolina has as much to do with what is growing on the sides of the waterway as it does with the water itself. That's the experience of a growing number of experts and a principle incorporated into projects facilitated by the Resource Institute. Comments from Fred Harris, a former Division Chief of Inland Fisheries, NC Wildlife Resources Commission, and David Penrose, a retired stream ecologist. When it comes to stream restoration in North Carolina, much attention is often paid to restoring natural stream function, but a growing body of evidence points to the importance of looking up when it comes to such projects. Canopies are the term used to describe the foliage and shade provided by vegetation around streams, said Fred Harris, who previously worked for the NC Wildlife Resources Commission, says preserving the trees around the stream is just as important. Canopies block out some of the sunlight that would otherwise heat up the rocks as well as the water during the summer months and raise the water temperature to the point that some of the fish and other animals that would normally be in the stream can't be there. It just gets too hot. One major coordinator of stream restoration projects in North Carolina is the Resource Institute, which works with communities and landowners to restore streams and wetlands. As part of the restoration, the organization prioritizes the planting of native grasses, trees, and shrubs to ensure the canopy is protected. David Penrose worked for several years as a stream ecologist and was just hired by the Resource Institute to review a stream restoration in Surrey County that was initiated a decade ago. I was actually completely surprised to see that the streams had gotten a lot better after this 10-year period. So I think just the combination of wise watershed management practices and restoration really demonstrated that these streams got significantly better. Penrose added that stream restoration projects, often funded by public dollars, aren't evaluated for their effectiveness enough and says that much can be learned from past projects. When I look at a restoration project, one of the things I look at is whether the stream has the ability to retain organic material. You can build a stream, you can build it as straight or as sinuous as you want, but unless it has the ability to retain organic material, it's not going to function like a stream. Leaves falling in higher elevations of the state as autumn moves in will provide nourishment for wildlife and vegetation throughout the winter and even spring months.
Hello, you're listening to Legal Work, a podcast offering legal advice to students, recorded from the production room of 88.1 WKNC-FM, the student-run radio station of North Carolina State University. My name is Colleen Keenan-Ferguson, and I'm the podcast manager for WKNC. Legal Work, this podcast, is my effort to help educate students and other young adults like myself who may be misinformed or a little ignorant of how the law works in specific cases under specific circumstances. Each episode has a different topic and this week's topic is landlords and tenants. If you've ever been confused about the leasing process or your rights as a renter or leaser, listen up because we've got some great information for you. I sat down with one of the esteemed lawyers from University Student Legal Services at North Carolina State to gather more information about this topic. If you have any pressing legal concerns, you should probably contact a lawyer. But if you just want to know more about how the law works, you can email me your topic suggestions to podcast at wknc.org. Enjoy listening. My name is Michael Avery. I'm a staff attorney with University Student Legal Services here at North Carolina State University. What is the best way to research a landlord or property? The first thing you do is you can come to University Student Legal Services. Um, We'll be happy to review your lease, and we can tell you whether or not uh, we've had experience with a particular landlord. For the majority of most students, we have dealt with most of the landlords in this area. We can tell you what those experiences have been like and whether you should be looking out for certain things. Aside from coming to University Student Legal Services, you can also vet a landlord by looking up the Better Business Bureau. That's BBB.org. And if they've had any complaints on BBB.org, you can see what those complaints were, whether the landlord addressed address those complaints and how they address those complaints. Also, you can use Yelp, you can do a Google search, but it's, it's a good idea to do some background research on your landlord to see how other people have dealt with that landlord in the past and whether they've had any problems with their tenancy. I personally would love to put a billboard in the middle of the brickyard that says, don't rent from XYZ landlords. Um, I can't do that. That's interference with contract, right? I can get in trouble for that. However, if a student comes to see us about a particular landlord and they ask about that landlord or that apartment complex or what have you, that opens the door for us to be able to discuss our experiences and, and you know, what we think of that landlord and how we've dealt with them in the past. So so I can't I can't broadcast it, but if you come and see me, I'm happy to tell you everything. Could you walk us through the different types of leases? Certainly, certainly. Well, The vast majority of leases in North Carolina are what we call joint and several liability leases. Um, In those leases, we look at all the tenants as one entity, as a whole. So each tenant is responsible for the actions of the other. So if one tenant happens to cause damage to the property, um, the landlord doesn't have to care who actually did it. The landlord can go after whoever they want. And usually what they're going to do is go after the person who is the easiest to find for service of process purposes and the person with the deepest pockets. But that person still retains a right to go after the person who caused the damage. But again, the landlord doesn't have to care who did it. Now, the other type of lease that we see are individual leases. Um, we see those most often in more of the, the like the modern properties where you'll see multiple bedrooms that have uh, bathrooms attached to them. So the tenant is responsible for that bedroom and that bathroom. But then there's a shared common area like the kitchen and the living room, and everybody shares a common responsibility for that, similar to a joint and several liability lease. Well, we do recognize uh, verbal leases in North Carolina. We recognize verbal contracts. Proving them is sometimes difficult. If you have, always remember that the written lease is the is the final agreement. It's the entire agreement. So if there was any kind of verbal agreements before the lease was signed, you have to make certain that those agreements are included within the lease itself because they have, if they're not in that language, then they're not a part of the lease. Do I have to provide written notice if I do not want to renew my lease after it ends? 
Well, with so many things involving landlord-tenant uh, issues, it's always important to read the language of the lease. That will determine whether or not you have a responsibility to provide a written notice of termination and what, um, how that is supposed to be delivered, how, what format it's in. Some leases we've seen require a certain size piece of paper, require how it's to be delivered, whether it has to be signed by all the tenants, which... Personally, I think it's a good idea for all the tenants to sign it, even if it's not required. The vast majority of leases do require written notice of termination. If you don't provide timely written notice of termination, then that lease is going to continue, likely on a month-to-month basis, but it could continue for an entire year, and that's going to be dictated by the terms of the lease itself. So again, it's important to read that lease. If you're not sure of the language in that lease, come and see us at Student Legal Services, and we'll be happy to tell you what your responsibilities are. If you didn't provide the written notice of termination and you were required to do so, then that lease is going to continue and you are responsible for that rent until you can satisfy that written notice of termination. So, like I said, most of them go on a month-to-month basis. So, even if you forget, you can catch up fairly quickly. But if you have one of those leases that goes for another year, you're stuck at that place for another year or until you can find somebody to sign a new lease for that premises. Should I conduct an inspection upon moving in and out, which includes taking pictures? Oh, this is this is extremely important. All right. It is so important for the tenant to be able to show the condition of the premises, not only at the beginning, but at the end of the tenancy as well. If it comes down to a situation where the landlord says that there was particular damage to the property and the tenant says, well, no, there wasn't. If the tenant doesn't have any evidence to back up their statement that there wasn't any damage, the landlord is likely going to win that argument in court. So it's so important to do a move-in inspection sheet, keep a copy of that, keep a copy of all documents that you have with the landlord, because the landlord's not required, unless there's a court order, to provide a copy of that. Sometimes we see situations where a student tenant has lost their lease and has asked the landlord for a copy, and, and the landlord refuses to give it. But as far as the move-in, move-out inspection, you need to go through that list. If there's anything that's wrong with the apartment, say that there's a missing screen or there's a broken screen, you make a notation of that, and you take a time-stamped, dated picture that corresponds with that. And then when you move out, you do the same thing, all right? And then you just set it aside. Hopefully you won't need it, but if you do need it, you'll be very glad that you did it. Because otherwise, again, if it becomes an argument between the landlord and the tenant, one saying one thing, one saying the other thing, the courts are likely going to side with the landlord. Certainly, we see a lot of people, especially when they're waiting for the return of their security deposit, and the landlord lists the damages to the property, and the tenant will tell us. It's like, well, no, I left it clean. I didn't do that. It's like, well, did you take pictures? Can you prove it? And they're like, well, no. And it's a lost cause at that point. Do I need insurance to rent an apartment? Well, again, this comes back to um, the language of the lease, all right? Some leases will require that you have liability insurance, all right? And that's insurance in case you cause damage to the property, say, you know, you're smoking a cigarette in your apartment, you cause a fire, all right? Now, the landlord's going to have insurance, all right? But the landlord would like to not have to use that insurance if necessary. So some leases will require you to have Typically, what we see is $100,000 in liability insurance, all right? That's only for the protection of the premises itself. It doesn't cover any of your personal belongings or anything like that. What that is for is, is renter's insurance, all right? Renter's insurance protects the tenant's belongings and personal property. Always realize that a landlord is generally not responsible for acts of nature or acts of third parties. So if something were to happen, say there was a storm and, and um, the property was damaged and your personal belongings were damaged as a result, the landlord doesn't have to pay for that. And if you don't have renter's insurance, you're stuck with that. And also, students tend to be statistically more likely to be victims of theft, burglary, things like that. Again, the landlord's not going to be responsible for acts of third parties. So if you have renter's insurance and somebody breaks into your, into your apartment and steals your personal belongings, 
you can file a claim and get compensated for that. What's the difference between a cosigner and a guarantor? And what do those words mean? Oh, sure, sure. Um, well, a cosigner or a guarantor are both saying that they will be responsible should the tenant not pay their bills. Yeah. The difference between them is should the tenant not pay their rent, the landlord with a cosigner has the ability to go after both parties simultaneously, right at the same time. They can sue the tenant and the cosigner. With the guarantor, the landlord's actually responsible to exhaust any kind of remedies that they have against the tenant first. And once they have done that, then they can go after the guarantor. But both parties are still you know, equally responsible. And it's always comes back to looking at the language of the lease because sometimes guarantor and cosigner are used you know, interchangeably. And that language is going to define really what they are, whether they are truly a guarantor or truly a cosigner. In dealing with landlord and tenant cases, do you see a lot of bed bugs? Oh, let's talk about bed bugs. <laughs> we have been seeing an increasing problem with bed bugs in the last couple of years, and it seems to be exponentially increasing every year. Um, the problem with, with bed bugs is that... Um, Unlike other pest control treatment, uh, the landlord is usually responsible for pest control treatment unless it was the tenant's negligence that caused that problem. Say, for instance, a tenant doesn't take out the trash, doesn't remove the dishes from the sink, you know, and that brings roaches, mice, things like that. Well, the tenant can be held responsible for treating that, that infestation because it was their negligence. But if they, didn't, they weren't negligent, then generally the landlord's going to be responsible for that. With bed bugs, it's completely different, right? Bed bugs don't care about whether there's trash around or there's dirty dishes. You can have a perfectly clean place and you can get bed bugs, right? They're not attracted to food or trash. They're attracted to us, all right? With bed bugs, if you don't notify the landlord within the very beginning of the tenancy, probably within the first couple of weeks, the landlord is going to hold that you are responsible for bringing them in and you will be responsible for the treatment of those bed bugs. And the problem is, is that the only effective way to treat bed bugs is through heat treatment. So a pest control company will come out and they will seal the windows and the doors. They'll bring in heaters and they will cook your apartment to 130 degrees, killing all the bed bugs and all the eggs. The problem is, is that most landlords don't go for that treatment because it's more expensive. So they rely on chemical treatment, which is not as effective. Um, and it usually takes two, maybe three treatments to work, and the tenant is going to be responsible for those costs unless, again, they caught it in the very beginning of the tenancy. And also be aware there are some leases that we're seeing now that require the tenant to be responsible regardless of when it's found out. So if you sign that lease that says, I will be responsible for bed bug treatment, doesn't matter whether you brought them in or not, you're paying for it. And that treatment is usually anywhere between $250 to $500, and it'll be multiple treatments. So that can add up really quick. I also realized that um, the university's entomology department actually has a really good write-up on how to uh, treat and identify bed bugs, and I guess we can we can put a, um, a link for that. If you're moving into a place, it, like I said, it's so important to, to inspect for bed bugs if it's furnished, and I probably would not rent a furnished apartment this day and age. But if it is, take a look at the mattress. That's the first place to look, all right? Pull the seam away from the mattress, and if you see... Well, if you see bed bugs, you know they're there. But what you're likely to see is just little reddish brown dots, which is actually dried blood, right? And you pull that back and then you know. If it's not furnished, you can sometimes, if the moldings around the walls aren't very secure, you can pull them back and see. But the, probably the best way to look is just to take the plates off the electrical outlets, the light switches, because they're traveling through the walls. And, you know, you might see the see the evidence of that there. Another thing that you can do is there's some bed bug registries online, and, and I can give you the links for those too, where you can put in an address and it can tell you whether there's been any bed bug reports. Our office, Student Legal Services, also keeps track of, A, 
any apartment that we've had that any student that's come in with us that has had bed bugs so we can tell whether there's been a particular history. And we know not only the particular apartments that have had problems with bed bugs, but there are certain apartment complexes that are just really bad. And I think that if students knew which apartments these were, they might think again about even moving into this place. But um, again, that interference with contract, I can't tell you unless you come to me first. So come to us. Is it possible to terminate a lease or leave it early? Well, again, this is going to depend on the language of the lease. Is there, sometimes you will find leases that include a right to early termination. It'll specifically say that you have to give a certain amount of notice, probably about 30 days, and then there's going to be a fee for that. Typically, it's about the value of two months' rent, so it's expensive if you have that option, but the vast majority of leases do not allow for an early termination, and that would be something that you would have to um, discuss with the landlord and come to an agreement between all the parties, all tenants and the landlord, as to whether or not to terminate the lease early. If there's, if a landlord has a responsibility to provide a fit, safe, and habitable premises. If the place is unfit, unsafe, or uninhabitable, and the landlord fails to fix that within a reasonable period of time, that may give the tenant the right to leave. But again, if somebody's considering uh, vacating the property, we recommend that they come to Student Legal Services so we can see what the problem is and whether it's something that we can address or whether it's something that does give them the right to vacate early without consequences. What should a student do if they feel as though their apartment is uninhabitable? Well, one thing that they can do, aside from coming to see us, is they can actually call the city of Raleigh's inspector, inspector's office, uh, the city inspector's office. They will come out and they will inspect the premises. And if there's any violations of, say, code or anything like that, one of the ones that we see more commonly is we'll have landlords that will break up a house into multiple bedrooms. Now, you're supposed to have ingress and egress, the ability to get in and out of this apartment or this bedroom, aside from just the bedroom door. But we have seen situations where um, students will have a bedroom with no windows. So if there's a fire, the only way to get out is that door. And if there's the fire behind that door, you're stuck. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a violation of housing code. And so the city can come out and if there's any violations, they can report it to the landlord and make the landlord fix them within a certain period of time. And if the landlord doesn't, then that's going to end the lease and the tenants are going to be able to get out. What gives a landlord the right to evict tenants? Oh, so many things. <laughs> well, you know, again, this comes down to your lease terms. All right. So the most common thing that we see is, is non-payment of rent. All right. If there hasn't been, if rent is not paid, the landlord can seek to evict. They can file this thing called a complaint and summary ejectment. That's just the fancy terminology for an eviction. Um, and unfortunately, the courts don't have any discretion if there's non-payment of rent. The judge will have to evict. And once you're evicted, you've got 10 days to appeal. And most appeals are not going to overturn the original decision. And then once that 10 days has passed, the landlord can seek this thing called a writ of possession. And within seven days thereafter, the sheriff will come out and remove you if you haven't voluntarily removed yourself. So non-payment of rent is a big one. Criminal activity that takes place on the premises is another big one. So, you know, if there's underage drinking, I mean, these are things that we see. You know, underage drinking, possession of marijuana, um, loud parties even. After 11 o'clock, the, there's a noise ordinance in Raleigh. And if they can hear you from the street, they're going to come in and they're going to hit you with, with a, a noise violation. Now, in Raleigh, the noise violation, it depends on really the discretion of the officer that's giving the ticket. It can be civil, which is just a fine, or it can be criminal. Because it can be either or, the landlord has the ability to act on that with the expedited right to evict tenants with criminal activity and get them out. So be careful with that stuff. For more information about noise violations, go to soundcloud.com slash WKNC881 and listen to Legal Work Episode 3, which is all about how to throw a party safely in Raleigh.
be careful with that stuff. And again, you know, if you get served with a complaint and summary ejectment, come to Student Legal Services. We will provide representation on your behalf. We will go to court for you if you're being evicted. And if you have any questions like that, just come and see us. If someone is evicted and takes it to court, is there any chance that they'll win and they'll be able to stop the eviction and continue living where they're living? Most likely not. <laughs> um, you know, it's North Carolina has a specific law, the expedited eviction of, of criminal defendants. So if the landlord can show that there was criminal activity that took place on the premises and they don't require a conviction, right? It's not like, you know, you've already been to court, you've been charged with this, you've been to court, you've been convicted, found guilty or pled guilty, what have you. The landlord doesn't have to wait for that. They just have to show that there was a likely occurrence of something like that in the premises. That's an easy standard to make, right? If the landlord can show that standard, the court's going to have no discretion and, and they're going to evict. Now, let's talk about NC State specifically. If a student is caught with drugs or alcohol in their dorm, can they be evicted and how does that work? Well, the university generally has a, a note tolerance policy when it comes to uh, drugs on the premises. Um, you can pretty much be sure that you are going to be evicted from student housing should that happen, um, and you will still be responsible for the cost. You're not getting your money back on that. And they will give you, I believe it's like 48 hours to get out. All right, gather your stuff and get out. No tolerance policy. When it comes to alcohol, well, you'd probably get something from the Office of Student Conduct. Um, and if you were found responsible for that violation of the Code of Student Conduct, then um, they can sanction you. Typically, they'll make you write a reflection paper, like a three to five page paper. They'll make you notify your parents. They may make you uh, go through an alcohol assessment like counseling. And they'll put you on disciplinary probation probably for the remainder of the semester, maybe a little bit longer. As long as there's nothing that happens during that period of time, you'll be fine. But if there's another violation of the Code of student conduct, it could result in suspension. So alcohol on the premises, as long as there's not a, a current disciplinary action taking place, you're probably going to be able to still live there. If you're currently on disciplinary probation, they may be able to take further action against you. But if it's drugs, you're gone. <laughs> Well, no, no, no. And the 48 hours, that's that's specifically with the university. All right. A landlord's not going to get you out in 48 hours. Um, there's some states and every state's laws are different. But in North Carolina, if a landlord has a right to evict a tenant, they're probably going to get it done within about six weeks at most because they have a duty to notify you to vacate the premises. And if you don't vacate the premise voluntarily, then they file that complaint and summary ejectment. That case is heard in small claims court and it's heard usually within about two weeks. All right. And then if the court agrees and grants the eviction, you've got that 10 days to appeal. And then once that 10 days is over, that writ of possession can be issued. And seven days after that writ is issued, <laughs> if you haven't voluntarily left, the sheriff is going to yank you out. of The landlord can't just dispose of your stuff. All right. Until a certain period of time has passed. Um, but I would not let that period of time pass. Get your stuff out. If someone's been evicted, what are the chances that they'll be able to rent successfully again in the future? Well, um, an eviction is going to be a public record, all right? Um, and it's certainly likely to affect your credit. And if you try to rent from another another place, typically those applications require you to list where you've lived before. And so that new landlord can contact the old landlord and ask if there was any problems. You know, a landlord can not rent to somebody based on, you know, eviction. You're not protected from, uh, you know, discrimination based on an eviction. You know, they can't discriminate against you based on like gender, race, ethnicity, religion, national origin, things like that. But if you have bad credit or you have a history of eviction, the landlord certainly can deny renting to you if that's happened. What are some of the costs associated with eviction? The landlord has to pay to uh, file the complaint. That's $96. Um, the landlord has to 
pay to have the complaint served by the sheriff, which is $30. If the landlord prevails in their claim, the court can require the, the tenant to pay back those costs and also realize that once you're evicted, you still have an obligation to pay rent. Right. You can't live there, but you're still stuck with the terms of the lease until the lease term ends or a new lease begins. So if somebody else signs a new lease for that same premises. So what we see a lot of the times is um, most student leases end around July. All right. So say you had one of those typical leases that ends in July and you were evicted in March and then somebody signs on to the lease starting signs a new lease starting May 1st. Well, you're still responsible for April, but then your obligations cease as soon as that new lease is signed for the premises. Uh, no, no. Student housing is, is, is different. It's just that if, if you're evicted from student housing, you've already paid for that. All right. So they're just keeping your money and you've just got to find a new place to stay and pay that money as well. I hate telling that to people. Sometimes being an attorney means you have to be the bearer of bad news. Yeah. And sometimes I'm just the guy delivering the bad news. Why or why not is it a good idea to get a sublease if you want to, say, study abroad or just not live there for a few months? I am not a fan of subleases, and I will tell my clients that from the very beginning. And there's, you know, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as sublease or assignment, and those terms sometimes are used interchangeably as well. It's important to review any kind of sublease agreement or assignment agreement to see whether it truly is a sublease or an assignment. What it is is with an assignment, and that's what we typically see. The old tenant, the well, the current tenant, the original tenant, vacates the property the new tenant moves in, the old tenant loses the right to possess the property, so they can't live there. But if the new tenant fails to pay rent, the old tenant can be held responsible for that. So there's really no more a relationship between the original tenant and the landlord. You know, the relationship is between the new tenant and the landlord. With a true sublease, that's different. There really isn't a relationship between the, the, the new tenant and the landlord. Really, the original tenant is kind of acting like a middleman in between them. The new tenant doesn't have a right to, you know, force the landlord to uh, satisfy any of the lease terms. Then the landlord actually can't act against the subleasing new tenant. They have to act against the original tenant. So it's still, it's, it's so important to read how that language is, but I don't like subleases. I don't like assignments, right? The reason being is that you are at the mercy of this new person that's moving in. Now, if you have the ability to vet that person, to find out a little bit about their background, their credibility, the likelihood that they're willing to pay their, their bills, you know, I feel a little bit more comfortable about it. But you know, most of the time people just find somebody on Craigslist or some ad or something like that. They have no idea who this person is. They move in, they cause damage to the property. You as the original tenant can still be held responsible for that. And the longer there is in the lease term, the more risk there is. So the, you know, I really don't like it. If it's a short lease term and you know the person that's moving in, you have some kind of relationship with them, I feel a little bit more comfortable about it, but realize you are accepting responsibility for whatever that person does. And I've had situations where the new tenant caused significant damage to the property and the original tenant got sued and they came to us and it's like, yeah, you're, you're responsible. Sorry. You can still sue this, this person that caused it, but the landlord doesn't have to care. They look at you. You look like you're more of a responsible person. You're going to be able to pay pay this debt if you get a judgment against you. Yeah, deeper pockets, deeper pockets. Yeah, research them just to, just to find out. I mean, it's not like you're going to have the ability to do a credit check on them or something like that as an individual. But, you know, if you can do any kind of background, if you know their friends, if you can just ask questions about them, something. But, you know, just going in there completely cold without any idea whether this person is likely to pay their bills or whether this person might cause damage to the property. I just don't think that that's a risk that I'd be willing to take. So I do not like subleases. If I can avoid having a client into, an, into a sublease or an assignment, I will do that.
So story time. I have a roommate. She studied abroad and she subleased her apartment to someone she knew. And this girl, uh, the new tenant, paid every single month that she was living there. But my roommate noticed that the apartment complex, uh, they double dipped. They took out a month's rent from the new tenant and they took the same month's rent from my roommate. So what would you suggest she do? And have you seen any situations similar to that? Well, I would encourage your roommate when she gets back to come and see us. Yeah. <laughs> it just sounds the landlord's not allowed to double dip. All right. It's kind of like just that same situation where, say, somebody leaves a lease early and then the landlord gets somebody to move in. Mm-hmm. You know, your obligations cease at that point. The landlord couldn't charge you still once they've got somebody new in there. And that's yeah. the same situation here. The landlord's double dipping and they really don't have the right to do that. If there's mm-hmm. truly an agreed upon sublease where the landlord was a part of it as well because the landlord has to agree to it and the landlord charged the, the original tenant when the new tenant was already paying, that's, that's not right. How can a renter get their security deposit back after the lease is up? Uh, This is always one of those questions that students are really, that they find really important. Well, with a security deposit, the landlord, by state law, has a responsibility within 30 days after the tenancy ends to provide what we call an accounting of damages. That's just a list of, like, unpaid rent, unpaid utilities, damages to the property, and return any remaining security deposit or if the damages exceed the security deposit, make a claim for additional money. They've got to do that within 30 days or our law has changed a little bit in that a landlord, say if they walk into the place and they can't make an accurate accounting of damages because the place is so wrecked, they can't do it within 30 days. Well, in that first 30 days, the landlord can send a notice saying, I need another 30 days. And then within 60 days, they provide that accounting of damages, return any remaining security deposit or make a claim for any additional damages. Well, if there's no security deposit and there's damages, you're responsible for them, yeah. I mean, we generally see that most leases do require a security deposit, and it's typically one month's rent. We've sometimes seen it lower. We've sometimes seen it two months' rent. But, you know, I mean, most of them do have it. If you don't have one and there's damages to the property, that money's just going to come out of pocket. You know, I think what it comes down to it, though, you know, if a student has a question about a lease and like I said, Student Legal Services is very happy to review your lease and give you an idea of what you can expect through that. We'll review it. We'd prefer to review it before you sign it, you know, but uh, we'll still review it after you sign it. But if you do have questions about your your landlord or your lease or, or any issues regarding your apartment or lease premises, come and see us. Come schedule an appointment with Student Legal Services. We, we have a vast amount of experience dealing with landlord tenant issues since it's one that affects students a lot. And we'll be happy to help you. That's It's just a benefit for being a student here. It's part of your uh, student fee, so come take advantage of it. When it comes to where we live, we want to feel safe. If you ever feel as though you're in danger where you live or that your home is uninhabitable or your neighbors pose a violent threat to you, you should contact the police. Put your safety first. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode of Legal Work. Be sure and subscribe to us on iTunes and look us up on SoundCloud, WKNC 881, on all social media channels. Thanks for listening. Legal Works opening theme is Boulevard St. Germain by Jazar, and the closing theme is Hustle by Kevin MacLeod. Both artists and their work can be found on freemusicarchive.com. Hi, this is Michael Avery with Student Legal Services at North Carolina State University. When I'm not being an attorney, I'm listening to WKNC. Hello, KNC listeners. This is Brooke with Eye on the Triangle. 
Joining us today for a faculty interview, we have Ms. Tara Mullins, the new director of the dance program here at NC State. Thanks for being here today, Tara, and congratulations on your new position. Thank you. So I know we have an interesting structure for the dance program here, since we don't have a dance major. Can you tell us a little bit about how things work? Well, the dance program falls under the umbrella of Arts NC State, which is under the direction of Rich Holly. Rich came to us about a year ago, and arts are just thriving here on campus. There are six programs under Arts NC State, and the dance program is one of them. We've got a number of academic courses, and the focus of our dance program is the two dance companies, the Panoramic Dance Project and the NCSU Dance Company. We also have other academic courses, and it's really an amazing time to be part of the arts at NC State. And then there's a new dance minor offered by the HES department that is thriving and exciting as well. Awesome. Yeah, as a member of one of the companies here, I'm very excited with all the opportunities we offer. So let's talk a little bit more about you and how you got started dancing. What was your first experience with dance when you were young? Well, when I was really little, my mom took me to a ballet class, and I kind of went kicking and screaming. It just really wasn't <laughs> what I wanted to do, which is funny to think about now. But around the time I was 13, which is the same age as my daughter, is when I really started to fall in love with dance. I had a teacher who had graduated from VCU, and she inspired us to choreograph. She taught modern and jazz, and she just really taught us to be artists and think outside of the box. So at that point, I really fell in love with the art of dance and the strength of it, the beauty of it, the expression. That's awesome. So what brought you to the dance program at NC State? Well, I went to college for my undergrad. I got my Bachelor of Arts at James Madison University in Virginia. And while I was there, I was performing for a company, and we performed at the American College Dance Association Mid-Atlantic Conference. And ACDA is a wonderful resource for colleges. It exists all over the country and even internationally. It's a very special organization. So we attended a conference, and I was performing in one of the concerts and saw the NCSU Dance Company, which was under the direction of the former dance program director, Robin Harris. And I just fell in love with the company. I fell in love with their professionalism. I fell in love with their choreography. Kind of kept up with it over the years, even when I was going to grad school at Arizona State. And really always felt like I wanted to be part of it. And so when we moved here about five years ago, the assistant director position was open, and I applied for that. And it just honestly has just been my dream job. I know that people say that, but I do mean it. It really is. We're definitely... Very lucky to have you here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your role now, the kinds of classes you teach, the companies here? Sure. We've got, like I said, the two companies, the Panoramic Dance Project, of which Brooke is a part, is a company that caters to a diverse range of movement styles. In the past few years, we've done tap, hip-hop, bongra, Latin. More recently, in the last year and a half, we've worked with Chuck Davis, founder of the African-American Dance Ensemble that's based here in Durham. And he's done 30-minute African piece with us last year and is doing a more of a African theatrical type of a piece this year. And we are very honored to have him work with us and continue to work with us. And with the Panoramic Dance Project, as with NCSU Dance Company, the work is very research-based. We discuss where the, the movements come from and the history and those types of things. The Panoramic Dance Project also really incorporates discussing and portraying various social justice topics. You know, in the arts world, it's, it's a great place to really dig deeper 
as far as the NCSU dance company goes. It's a modern dance company. Last weekend, we got to work with Monica Bill Barnes, a dance artist out of New York City. And we're also going to be working with Dana Bella from Radford University this year. We have Justin Turnow coming to do Cunningham-based work. There's also a choreography component. They still go to the ACDA conferences. Those companies are affiliated both with academic courses, so the students receive credit. We also have an independent study course, which is really exciting because students get to, and Brooke's also a part of that class too, we get to have the students produce their own work for the fall concert. We have a comp class, dance composition, which is in the spring. We'd love to have anyone interested in the craft of choreography take that class. And we also have a variety of special topics courses that we offer over the years. And then under the minor, there are lots of amazing courses. Dance is really thriving and moving forward. Yeah, that's awesome. I know as a member of the independent study class, definitely a great opportunity to apply all those things that we've learned through the comp class. I've been lucky enough to study under Tara. Tara, where do you see the role of dance uh, going in the future here at NC State? Well, I think there are lots of different opportunities. I think there are opportunities in the two companies for dancers that come to campus with experience. Those are really immersive opportunities. A lot of those students stay in the company for their four or five years on campus. So those are really immersive experiences. And then we also have, like I said, different courses that you can take outside of that. And the minor offer a diverse range of experiences as well. But I also foresee the, the dance program getting involved in arts integration. In fact, this morning I had a meeting with a mathematics professor just talking about different ways that we could collaborate. I've had conversations with professors in the science department. Recently, design students came and sketched our rehearsals, and then we discussed artistic process and design process after those sessions and are hoping to use some of those sketches and some of our material this year as far as inspiration and also as part of posters and programs. I also met with a woman who's on campus that teaches classical Chinese dance about working with our students. So, you know, I truly feel I love just getting out there and walking around campus and meeting new people because I feel like there's a lot of room for arts integration. I'd love to do more work at Hunt Library with dance and technology. And, and there are resources at Arts NC State. Amy Sawyers is the art outreach coordinator, and she's fabulous and really does connect people. Yeah, definitely. I remember seeing a video there that you choreographed and helped direct, and that was pretty consistently shown. So that's definitely really exciting. If you could get a message out to the students, faculty, staff, surrounding area. You know, with our master class program, those classes are offered and they're free and open to the NC State community. So one message was, would be to take, you know, take a risk, get out there, even if it's not in the dance program, go to the craft center check some things out. When the new Greg opens, go look at their exhibits. Be prepared to be surprised. been talking about this a lot in meetings lately that people seem to be surprised at the high level of art that's being produced. So my two bits of advice are take some risks and be prepared to be surprised. That's a lovely note to end on, Tara. Thank you so much for joining us today and being so open. We definitely look forward to watching the dance program in the future. Thank you guys for listening. This has been Brooke interviewing director Tara Mullins on Eye on the Triangle. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review.
So, do you like punk? Because today's album is pretty punkin' punk. The album, or rather EP, is Glitter On My by Socrates. This group is actually a WKNC darling, and I believe one of the tracks off of this very EP is currently in WKNC rotation as a must-play. Don't ask me which, I honestly have no idea. Anyways, this band describes themselves as adjective punk, making fun of people like me who have a thing for using way too many subgenres to describe a band. Ah well, sue me. Anyways, today we're gonna skip the band's intro section and just jump right into it. That is definitely not because I know nothing about them. Not at all. No way would I skip my favorite part of the review just because of my own incompetence at indie research. <clears throat> so, the EP. Ah, yes. Fresh, hot, steamy, raw, adjective punk, as they say. Glitter on my is basically lo-fi garage punk. The EP was released independently, and while I can't say I know this for certain, I believe it was a product of do-it-yourself home recording. It definitely has that sort of raw, unpolished vibe to it. Be prepared for me to use the word raw a lot more times in this review, by the way, because it's, oh, it's the perfect word. Perfect adjective. Now, with six tracks total, Glitter On My brings an impressive amount of energy and charisma. However, this does mean that I'm going to have to go into more detail to keep this episode from being short. To more fully cover the EP, I will hereby be splitting this review up into sections that will go over a different component or instrument. Ready? Okay, let's go. As is expected of punk, the lyrics and vocals are strong and emotional. The vocals specifically are a mix of traditional punk singing and metalcore screamo. That is, for most of the album, the lead singer is primarily using a very natural, low-profile tenor to get across the lyrical content, with occasional screaming used to accentuate the rest of the song. This really only comes into play during the last two tracks or so for the length of the bridge and the outro, so if screaming really isn't your thing, you'll be fine for most of the EP. I know I'm not super into it myself. As much as it is a staple of traditional hardcore punk, I don't think it really does a whole lot to further the songs musically, and it's very jarring when it happens. Perhaps it's not to my taste, perhaps it could have been done better. Maybe it's a mix of both. Regardless, I think the vocals as a whole are pretty good. They convey a range of anger, sadness, angst, and excitement, just as punk should do. As for the guitar, it's pretty bare-bones situation, not in a bad way. Basically, what I mean is, you just have the essential lead guitar, some bass, and occasionally some rhythm. The lead carries each song, though, and is by far the most present and audible. It's simple instrumentation, but in a good way. As for effects, there's a light layer of distortion over the lead, heavy distortion over the rhythm whenever it's present, of course, and a healthy layer of echo. It's a subtle echo, but it's there nonetheless. The guitar work is actually one of my favorite things about this EP. Despite the rather average technical setup, the solos and riffs are practically infectious. I would say that's actually above average for a punk album. Usually the guitar is just there to signal that it's time for thrashing. Not Socrates, though. Socrates know that the guitar is a key element, and they utilize it well. It's something that helps them stand out, and in my opinion, it's the best part of the EP. This bumps it up from being an average punk album to being a pretty jammin' punk album. Moving on to percussion, the drums on this album are about standard. Glitter on My features your typical drum kit without any real deviation. Again, even though it's par for course in this genre, I wouldn't say it's a bad thing. Just something else worth mentioning. The drum work as a whole is also fairly standard and doesn't stand out, 
There's no technical innovation, but I will say that the percussionists perform very well, and that's important for any punk album worth its stuff. You can't much have a driving song if the person keeping the beat is off-tempo or dragging or rushing. The drums propel each song forward, making sure that you feel every ounce of raw emotion and punk that composes this EP. As a whole, I'd say Glitter On My is pretty good. It's not perfect, granted. I think the screaming could have been cleaned up a bit, maybe some extra work could go into rhythmic composition to add another layer of complexity. However, it is still enjoyable, and in an era where punk has been proclaimed dead, it's impressive enough to see someone keeping punk alive, let alone doing a great job of it. For my final score, on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give Glitter On My a 4. Above average punk. Pretty punkin' good. Punk it up. Punk up the jams. Punked, starring celebrity Ashton Kutcher. Okay, that's enough of my slowly devolving into insanity. Once again, the EP is Glitter On My by Soccer Tees. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Linz, Klesk, Floatstar, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or by sending a tweet to at wknc underscore EOT. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and today I will be taking a look at the classic film Psycho. I've been recommended this film more times than I can count, but I've always had a little bit of something against black and white movies. I've seen movies in black and white that I've really enjoyed, like 12 Angry Men or Rear Window, but something always stops me from seeking them out on my own. Some part of me thought that color films were in some way superior. I guess I always just figured that if the movie industry had moved on and away from black and white filming, there was probably a good reason for it. Well, it probably was really just that with color, there's a lot more you can show in a film that will be understood by the audience. When filming in black and white, there are a lot of extra considerations that go into it. Actors wear exaggerated makeup, and the scenes often have high contrast colors so they don't blend together on the screen. Black and white films are a whole different ballgame as compared to color films. A lot of techniques transferred over to color when the industry moved that way, but a lot were lost too. There are many techniques that have no real use in color film that were once powerful in black and white film. The main point I am trying to get across here is that the two should almost be considered different genres of film. Black and white films are from a different time, they tell stories in a different way, and they use techniques that have fallen into obscurity in the modern age of film. Psycho is a classic. If you consider yourself a film buff, you've certainly heard of it if you haven't already seen it. In my segment, I try to look at films people have forgotten, and this is certainly not a film that will be forgotten anytime soon. But how many people have actually seen the movie? Well, tons. Tons of people have seen this movie probably every film student in the past 50 years, and it was also an immensely popular movie when it was released. This movie has gotten its fair share of exposure, 
But if you ask 10 or 15 people now to get a feeling for how many have seen this movie, the number would probably be below 10. Of course, this does depend on who you ask, but let's just assume they represent the general public. This is why I bring this film to my review. I watched it not intending on talking about the film, but after seeing it, I could not help myself. This film is simply a masterpiece. An antiquated masterpiece, yes, but that has never stopped people from enjoying the film before, let alone any other type of antiquated art. The movie was directed by Alfred Hitchcock and was released in 1960. The film was the most profitable of Hitchcock's career, and it certainly is not surprising that that's so. I can't even begin to comment on how this film could be improved, because I simply have nothing to add. Okay, maybe I can say that the filming was a little shaky at times, but how can the film crew be blamed for that? They got amazing shots with the equipment they had at the time, and the fault of the shaky cameras hardly falls on the crew. If you really wanted to give them even more leeway, you could say that it was a stylistic choice made to keep the audience in an even deeper state of uneasiness. The one thing I can say is that it is most certainly a film of its time period. Sometimes a film comes before its time and sometimes after, but Psycho hit the nail right on the head. Maybe it even created the time period of film that it was in because of how influential it was. The acting. I love the acting in this movie. Off-putting might not even be the right word for it, and maybe rather disturbing on the surface and devilish below it. The man playing the psycho is instantly a huge creep. He stares and pauses just a little too long, but almost unnoticeably so. Your subconscious tells you something is wrong, and when you look for it, it is almost as if it was never there. He gets more deranged as the film continues, though, and of course it becomes far more noticeable. The Psycho took the cake for acting in this movie, but all major characters had their quirks and lines that were oh so well done. Of course there is no acting without writing, and this film's story has it all. It does not care for its characters, meaning that there is no plot shield for them, and it leads you astray but guides you along at the same time. The acting and writing of this film fit well enough to make the insane characters of the film believable when you are not likely to have ever come across anyone like this or to ever in the future come across anyone like this. I'm sure that it is not possible for me to give this movie a thorough look in the scope of just one segment. The only thing I can say to truly encapsulate this film is to recommend this film with the highest score I can give it, so I'm giving it a 5 out of 5. This may be the only film I ever give this score, and I think it is rightfully so. It has replaced my favorite film, and it's not even in my favorite genre. I cannot recommend this film enough if you are looking for something to keep you on the edge of your seat with anticipation and suspense. Alfred Hitchcock was simply a master of his craft. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snowferated. I'm Jake Winters, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening.